0: Make I like a lot. Is it ready for production?
1: Yes. Oh, have there been any side effects? Yes, sir, a few side effects.
0: Well, that's okay. As long as there's no flipper babies, right, Don?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, there have been a few flipper babies. Dickheads, like a pink laser
2: beam of truth, beaming straight from Walt Dangerfield, satellite of love to your braid hole. Yes. We are your personal dickheads. This crew has not hung out in a month, so we're on Super Tangentville. <laughs> so uh, so uh, it took us a long time to get started today, so I uh, apologize in advance if we go off on uh, weird tangents. Uh, my name is David Agronoff. I am author of Goddamn Killing Machines, just recently released from Clash. Books and
1: to my left is and riding shotgun in this satellite of love is Anthony Mr. Tree Vino, <laughs> Woo, who is the author of King Space Force? Boring moving yeah. on,
2: anyways. You should, yeah, you just put out a comic. Didn't oh, you? I
1: just put yeah. out a comic for uh, our local horror. I don't know if it's a con. It's like a local horror event called Horrorgasm SD. So myself and a few other writers and artists got together to put out uh, Tales of Horrorgasm, which features uh, a story that I'm really proud of, making fun of uh, incels. All right, so I'm going to be checking that out tonight. So you should do. Um, and who's that over in this sexy satellite of love control booth? Baby? That's me. I'm Langhorn J. Tweed. Awesome. All
2: right. Well. Let's get right to it. Today, we do have two pieces of PKD news. What? Yeah, he didn't do anything, but uh, some people <laughs> that would did. be that would be real. <laughs> that would be that would be really hard. Yeah. <laughs> the PKD Film Festival is happening pretty much right now in is that Lille, France?
1: Uh, that's probably Lily France. Lily
2: France.
0: <laughs> L- oh. Lil, France? You
1: know, Lil France. Lil France. Wow, Lil France. Noted hip hop artist Lil France. <laughs> uh,
2: from October twenty fifth to twenty sixth. So in the past, when you're listening to this, and coming up uh, next weekend in Cologne, Germany, or Cologne, Germany. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I actually I know how to pronounce that. It's Cologne. Cologne. <laughs> Cologne it's it's Cologne. Cologne in uh, Cologne, Germany, is the European Philip K. Dick Film Festival, which is, of course, organized by the same folks who do the New York and the California. And awesome. So, friends sick. of the sick. Yeah. So, I hope you Europeans are enjoying your uh, your short and awesome sci fi films. And uh, but many
0: Americans that are over there right now, we yeah. we're jealous.
2: Yeah, we are jealous. We wish we could be at the Film Fest. Uh, There's always all kinds of cool stuff, but
1: you can go check out on... um, Maybe next year you can get on that Lil' France compilation album.
2: Yeah, I'll try. (laughs) Uh, Me and Lil' France are friends. uh, But it's cool that they're doing a PKD Film Fest in in Europe. I think that's really cool. I think, and I'm hoping there's a lot more European films, so I would definitely go check out the list of films and see how many you can track down. Speaking of film festivals, the other piece of news is that the season four premiere of Man in the High Castle is screening on this Wednesday, October 30th at time of recording at the Savannah Film Festival in Georgia. It's going to be the first kind of I think it's the world premiere of the season four premiere of Man in the high castle which means season four is coming soon nice which means i gotta get caught up with season three because i've i i'm the one that's actually finished season two Man and i'll high continue
1: castle. to not watch any of what i've after i've already what i've watched those those were a lot of words that kind of made some sense let me let me retry remix and i'll continue to not watch past where i left off for the uh, episode we did last year because uh, you were not a fan of Man the High Castle no, Show. No,
2: I... I... <clears throat> I actually, I like it. I just, I obviously didn't like it enough that I, like, went straight into watching season three. Yeah, but... you didn't
0: binge it or anything no. like that.
1: But to be fair, I didn't care for the novel either, so... Right. Yeah. And uh, I did, so...
0: But I think that's a very different um, animal, but... The only thing I remember Anthony liking was the Marshall.
1: Well, duh. Yeah. Because <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. It's a very Anthony character. Right.
0: Yes. So, uh, maybe, uh, Langhorn and I
2: will do an episode on the, uh, later seasons at yeah. some point. get a guest uh, for it. Yeah, that's yeah we true. can do that. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the two pieces of PKD news. I do think it's cool that, uh, Man in the High Castle Season 4 is starting soon, and they've really gone past the notes that, uh, PKD had on it, so it's all kind of original stuff and, uh, trying to play with the themes. So, it's kind of neat. But, all right,
0: uh, and... You know, for those that haven't watched the the show beyond season one or haven't watched it at all uh the it apparently gets progressively more science fictiony as it goes along, as and,
2: particularly and, in season three, which I have not watched yet, but yeah. I've been told that too, yeah yeah, uh,
0: I've only watched season one, but the uh but from what I hear from people that have seen it the, it it becomes a really different thing than the book.
2: Yes. Yes. It's definitely more. Even science more so f-
0: than season one differs.
2: Yeah, it definitely gets more science fictiony, but I, I think it stays true to some uh, PKD themes and the whole narrative of what is, uh, you know, what
0: does the narrative of history really mean? Well, it's really, it's really a tough show when you think about it because there's a character the, uh, the guy from Dark City. I can't remember his name off the top. of my Rufus. Head. Uh, yeah, Rufus Sewell. Sewell. His character is a Nazi, but you, I kind, think of root, you kind of root for him.
2: Well, he definitely becomes more of a hero the longer the show goes on.
0: Yes, All right. people still talk about Nazis, Anthony.
1: Yeah, I know. And it's still just as boring.
2: All right. Anyways, on to dick-like suggestions.
1: Yeah, let's,
0: let's get past Anthony's uh, Holocaust denier.
1: Whoa! Whoa. <laughs> yeah, okay. No, 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 no. Not what I said.
0: Well, oh, I'm so bored with this Holocaust ju- stuff. I think let's you just l- broke some ear Let's talk about Billie Eilish. <laughs>
1: Wait a minute. How old do you think I am? All right. So, Dick likes suggestions. David, you're the noted. Um, Dick likes I would, I would venture to say that David reads the most out of the three of us,
0: right? Oh, yeah.
1: yeah. So, David.
2: So this month, for my dick-like suggestion, I've been reading a lot of books for the Hugo series, and I spent a lot of time reading Dune, so I don't want to get too heavily into Dune because we're going to do a whole episode on that, but uh, hot take, Dune is a good science fiction novel. (laughs) Um,
1: I'm so shocked that you still feel that way.
2: Yeah, uh, it's my third time reading it, so look forward to that episode. Because that will be a while before you get it. But the new, uh, brand new book that I read was a novella by Stephen Kozunewski called Skin Wrapper, which is a prequel to the hematophages, which was a Dick-like suggestion last year that both Anthony and I read. Hmm. And so this is like a 80-page novella about these, like, space mummy characters. It's space they're, mummy they're pirates.
1: It's like uh, the hills have eyes if they were on a spaceship
2: floating around yeah and and so we get an origin story for uh some of the skin wrapper characters in a short 80 page novella but it's it's really good i gave Kazanowski a hard time about his using the word butt to describe somebody's ass a couple times in the book where it was kind of (laughs) awkward to me i mean at least
1: he didn't use the word tummy
2: (laughs) that's true (laughs) i'll never let it go Yeah, Anthony's referring to a time that I used somebody, I used Tubby. That's a prime example of what I did exactly what I was giving him a hard time for. I'm I'm not saying whatever. It's a good book. I just was giving him a hard time about it. So my dick-like suggestion this month, if you want to check out both the Hamada and Skin Wrapper by Stephen Kazanowski. So it's a ridiculously hard title to spell in the Hamada plus his name, which is very hard to smell. 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 (laughs) You can smell it for sure.
1: Uh, There's a strange fetish in a channel on Pornhub that I have yet to encounter, David. Yeah.
2: Well, Kazanuski is a great writer. Uh, writes. Uh, he did a Bizarro zombie detective novel a couple years ago. Yeah, uh,
1: Brain Eater Jones.
2: Right, and uh, but I really hope he keeps writing science fiction. I kind of. En- I, I, I just definitely enjoyed these, and and uh, it was fun. Larry, I'm guessing you have a video game for the, your dick-like suggestion.
0: Well, I sort of... I, I'm not sure if I would call this a dick-like suggestion, but it's... Um, well, that's it the is segment. A video, it definitely is a video game. Okay. It's just recently out in the past couple of months. And if anybody out there has played... what is was the name of that? that game that I like so much that I can't even remember the name of it so it's, just, it's not actually a deck like suggestion
2: well it and you don't know what the name is right. so there you go well done <laughs> cool Enjoy so moving America. on
0: then <laughs> <laughs> no the, the name of the game is Telling Lies it's a choices game and I'm, I'm, I'm totally blanking on the the game made prior by the same people her story uh her story which is a kind of a murder mystery but it's one woman that is being interrogated by police several different times and you have to figure out what what the story is and uh this is by the same people, uh Anna 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 Perna Anna Perna film uh, they also company. do film yeah, yeah but they also do video games some of the best video games coming out right now and this one is Their movies
2: are notorious for losing money but they make good movies <laughs> they like, make good shots movies. Fired. they but make good movies that lose a lot of money, yeah,
0: yeah, and they do I'm, make good movies, but their video games have been top not, and this is another one that has the the same thing where it's you make choices, you try to figure out when these people there's four characters in this, and you try to figure out if they're lying or telling the truth, and you follow the story and and it, it it's dick like in the sense that. That you don't know what reality is. You know, it sort of hovers between... The, and there's paranoia and all those all those uh, themes that Dick has in, in paranoia and, and reality. Thank you, Wang So, on. telling lies. All right, dickheads. Check it out.
2: Time to mark this day in history. Because... Right on. Anthony Trevino has a dick-like suggestion. I don't know if it's dick-like, David. I think it's dick-like. We just read a post-apocalyptic novel... By Philip K. Dick.
1: That's true. So I'm going to recommend Neil Barrett Jr.'s Through Darkest America, which is, as David already stated, a post-apocalyptic novel set in... I actually couldn't figure out when in time it was supposed to be set. It's after uh, 80s nuclear
2: war. But I don't...
1: I what I, I had wished that the two people who recommended it to me, one who's sitting next to me and another one who's been on this show, hadn't told me... Kind of one of the more important reveals that is never really mentioned. It's only alluded to, and it's very obvious once you read through the books. I don't want to say a whole lot about what the book is about. What I can tell you is that it's very much a Cormac McCarthy-esque sci-fi coming-of-age story about a young man who loses his parents and is kind of forced out of their small town and into this wasteland in the world that we're now currently living in. But one thing I do want to point out is... Two to three chapters in, you're gonna think this is a revenge story, and it is not a revenge mm. story. It it very much feels like the setup for a revenge story, but then events happen and you're like, Well now where are we going? So Yeah.
2: Through Darkest America is one of my favorite reads of the last ten years. It is is absolutely an underrated
1: masterpiece. So, David. Mm-hmm. What was happening in nineteen sixty five?
2: Oh, he's nice. moving us along. Nice. Uh, we've already talked about what happened in 1965, but uh, we were having a lot of race riots in 1965. Yeah, we uh, were in the second year of the Johnson administration. We were just getting started in Vietnam.
0: It was a it was it, it was a country in turmoil. It was sure.
2: definitely a country in turmoil, and at the time, a young Philly K Dick uh, <laughs> was definitely concerned about
1: nuclear war whenever you call him philly k dick i imagine he wears like his his baseball hat backwards right. he has two big shorts and a t-shirt on you don't think he has like a spinny propeller <laughs> <Pro-pro-propeller> <laughs> hat? no yeah. no 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 okay he's more like a dorky sports fan not a dork <laughs> right a straight up dork yeah not a straight up dork <laughs> So the writing
2: of Dr. Blood Money happened uh right after Martian Time Slip and before Game Players of Titan. Really? So, yes.
0: It was written that early.
2: Yes. So we PKD sat on this one for a little bit. And I think it's interesting to think of it coming after Martian Time Slip because he's still kind of dealing with some of the mental health things. It and it's funny too because I think it feels strong. To me,
1: I'm a fan of Martian Time Slip. I know David's gesturing at me. For those of you that are listening to this and not listening to it via YouTube, David gestured at me because I did not care for Martian
0: Time Slip. Well, it's right. not all about you, there, fucking Anthony. Well, well he was. M- I, I didn't Anthony, like
1: Mister Tree. I didn't Vino. like it either. Well, That's he right. was gesturing at me, so so just calm down, Larry. We remember to include you.
0: Jesus Christ! Oh okay. My God.
1: So, I'm the one... Anthony,
0: I'm the only person in the room fucking Trevino Oh, this is
1: Larry. I'm very upset because he made a comment that wasn't about me. What's your last name? Anthony,
0: I can only talk about me. All right. Trevino. (laughs) This is...
1: Hey, guys.
2: All right. Pause for a second. You both didn't like uh, Martian Times clip. I did. I think it was well written. I think that coming after Martian Timeslip, it seems like he was on a good roll, but then... Uh, of course, Game Players of Titan was a little bit of a mess. A so, little bit. A little bit of a mess. But you can put the context of the writing of these three books together as kind of like a trilogy of they happened
0: very close
2: together. Uh, yeah, but I feel,
0: and this one's much better put together than yeah. either one of those, I think.
2: Sure. It's definitely b- better put together than Game Players of Titan. Yeah. For sure. And it's interesting to me that, that Ace, because. The agency had sent all these manuscripts out around the same time, but it's interesting. The game players of Titan got the go after Man in the High Castle before <laughs> before this one. Yeah, you know that to me is really interesting. And uh, Martian Time Slip, of course, famously was one that Don Wolheim turned down.
1: You know, oddly enough, now that we've done a, a few of these, I notice that Wolheim will turn down ones that are actually more literary. Oh, yeah, in their scope, definitely. As yeah, opposed sure. to just being like your generic well, sci fi pop boiler. That wasn't
0: his thing, right? His thing was let's space pirates. Let's, his thing was action.
1: Yeah, let's
0: our audience is fourteen year old boys. Let's keep them yeah, entertained.
2: <laughs> Which if you remember from our Barry Maltzberg interview, uh presented what Barry was witness to the fact that Wolheim lost his shit when Man in the High Castle got yeah. nominated for Hugo <laughs> because it was one that he had turned down. And he said it wasn't even science fiction. So in yep. here, we're going to we're gonna eventually talk about some pretty serious Wolheim interventions on this book. Oh, yeah. uh, in the timeline of the writing, I think it's really interesting that he went from this to Game Players of Titan. And yeah. I, I'm wondering if after this one, he didn't specifically write Game Players of Titan because he was, like, throwing a bone at Wolheim, like... I gotta get For sure.
0: Here's all the aliens you want, you know. Here's all, all the stuff.
2: pulpy shit you could ever want, and <laughs> yeah, because uh, Martian Tyneslip, Slip, he we know that regardless of how you guys felt about it, he believed Martian Tyneslip Slip was in his more literary canon. Uh, he very, Dick very specifically said that about about uh, Martian Tyneslip, Slip, and he believed that about this book too, which was submitted to the to SMLA under the title are you guys ready? Oh god. I already read it but I'm ready. In Earth's Diurnal Course, A Terran oh Odyssey. A Terran Odyssey. <laughs> Yikes. Okay, so I looked up what di, diurnal means. I, you know,
0: Dick really had the pulse of the people. <different>. He's really aiming for a broad audience with those titles.
1: Uh That title is (laughs) reflective of one of those UFO conspiracy theory books you would find. Yeah. (laughs) Like sitting on a back shelf of a bookstore that's going out of business.
2: I don't know, guys. If all of his bad titles, do you think this might be the worst? It might be. It might be. And here's the thing he tried.
1: The worst so far, maybe. It's definitely the most boring. I don't know if it's the worst. (laughs)
0: Well, it's definitely in, the most pedantic in a,
1: of all the titles. It, yeah, it's the most bougie of the titles. Yeah.
2: Well, we also know that he would later go on to try and use the title again. Oh, really? And when uh, the novel that became the Ganymede Takeover, co-written with Ray Nelson, okay, he originally um, <clears throat> wrote uh, called the manuscript Earth's Diurnal Course. So he really like. Oh. Like he, was really, he was really into that title He really liked
1: that title That's a bad title
2: <laughs> I don't think it even actually makes any sense No, it has nothing to do with the actual book
0: The title yeah. it has is a good, is a good title what is, a, what is Diurnal?
2: It has something to do with the uh, Regular r- Revelation of the Earth Like revolution? revolution of the Earth, yeah Like like a 24 hour period
1: the rhythm of each day the rhythm oh, yeah. of Diurnal, day. an adjective, of or during the day. Really?
0: What the fuck does that <laughs> have
1: to do with anything? <laughs> anything. Daily of each day, diurnal rhythms, similar daily, everyday, day-to-day, quotidian, occurring every day. Wow. Yeah. Uh,
2: real great title. and oof. Uh, oof is right. Oof is right. And uh, so this would be it was submitted to smla on february 11th 1963 that was the date that it arrived so it was at the agency for two years before really were there edits in there or was there there an
0: editing period or was it just yeah i'm sure just sat on
2: i'm sure there were drafts done but the the paperback came out on june 11th 1965 and that would be the paperback that you read larry You have the Ace original. Um, If you want to hold it up for the YouTubers. Um, That is a pretty cool
1: cover. It is so much better than the garbage covers that Dave and I typically have for these Mariner editions. Get (laughs) your shit together, Mariner.
2: Yeah, Mariner, the covers are super boring. Obviously, they didn't put a lot of energy into that. Stop having your intern graphic designer do these. (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, Weirdly enough, this... Uh, it was a PKD book that did not see publication in England until 1977, which is interesting. So there was not uh, there weren't as many foreign editions of this one. Uh, actually, the why,
0: Do you know why that is? Or? I
2: do not know why that is. Uh, but I do know, uh, if we're going to talk about um, Dr. Blood Money covers, I would say my favorite is the Sci-Fi Masterworks cover, which is like a really goofy looking one if you haven't seen that one. That is the cover. Maybe that, I'll use
0: that one for the uh, for the screenshot or whatever. You yeah,
2: email. I used I used it on my blog uh, review, uh, not review the wait for the podcast uh, post. There was also oh, in this period there was on March seventeenth, nineteen sixty four, about halfway through, PKD did take part of the novel and turn it into a short story called Terran Odyssey, which was published as a short story and has been collected in Volume 5 of the Collected Stories of PKD. So there is there is a short story floating out there but I believe it's just an excerpt basically. Okay. So then what happened was Don Wolheim had this amazing idea uh, where this was right around 1964 of course was the year that Dr. Strangelove came out. And right. what was the subtitle for Dr. Strangelove? It was like it was like how We Learned to, yeah. <laughs> learn to Love the Bomb.
0: Yeah.
2: How how We Learned to Love the Bomb. Yeah. Which is Stanley Kubrick's black and white kind of satire farce it's of... It's
1: How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love, and the, love bomb. the Bomb. And Love the Bomb.
2: Yeah. And so, even though this book has jack-all shit to do with Dr. Strange Love, has nothing to do with it, uh, Walheim decided that he was going to title the book Dr. Blood Money or How We Got Along After the Bomb in order to and actually put in press releases that it was a it a was
1: companion piece to Doctor Strangelove
2: and some kind of un unhinged sequel that's to, like unofficial sequel to Doctor okay. Strangelove and it has I mean, you would
1: get hella sued for that now,
2: yeah, I'm surprised you didn't get sued for it then. But for whatever reason, first of all, Doctor Strangelove was a successful movie, and yes, it was good. It had it was a Stanley Kubrick thing. It was a piece of the time. It doesn't really, I don't know how well it holds up today. But it's interesting that Wolheim was like, "Hey, PKD, let's let's hitch our wagon to that."
0: Right. <laughs>
2: and I also, yeah, and it seems like kind of a fucked up move. It would be like me retitling The Vegan Revolution with Zombies, Portlandia (laughs) 2. Or, like, yeah, they're similar, but but in this case, it's not even that similar. There's nothing really kind of... No, there's
0: nothing tying them together.
2: At all. In any way, shape, or form. So, and we do know, and we'll have quotes later from PKD, that he was not super stoked on the change of the title, and that's probably because he also... Really loved his weird, stupid, uh, earth's diurnal course (laughs) title. He wrote a letter in 1965 to Scott Meredith complaining about Don Wolheim's reaction also to the expansion of The Unteleported Man, which, by the way, uh, The Unteleported Man was released within this time. We did not do an episode on it. I did not raise this issue because it was technically considered a novella, and it, oh, okay. will, and it is eventually expanded into the novel Lies, Inc., which we will cover. So we will, so, so is that why it's
0: called The Unteleported Man slash Lies, Inc.? Exactly. Okay. Yes.
1: Um, actually, uh, I forget the gentleman's name, but there was an individual at the PKD Fest who did a, a presentation on that very thing. Really? Okay. So we'll, we will
2: eventually cover The Unteleported Man as a part of Lies, Inc., so, if if anyone was, like, calling bullshit on us, um, why we didn't do the Unteleported Man, that is why.
0: I'm not sure why you would, but, I mean, that's... Hey, funny.
2: I'd just be happy to get some feedback.
1: Because <laughs> nerds know no bounds,
2: Larry. That is true. So, Dick wrote in this letter about the, the title, Dr. Blood Money.
1: Anyhow, be this as it may, we are stuck with the fact of Don's reaction, but if you will recall my fears... You will see at once that basically I anticipated this. I did so on the basis of two events. One, and two. The absurd title which I am informed he has tormented me with on my ace novel to be released next month. Something on the order of Dr. Blood Money or How We Learned to Live After the Bomb. A title which will ring down the chambers of time as long as I am so unfortunate as to exist.
2: Now, I don't know what, how earth's diurnal course would have gone down for the rest of his existence earth's but.
1: diurnal course sounds like an academic book i would have had to read in a geology class right or something so i think dr
2: blood money as a title on its own is good and i'm glad that for example mariner and vintage and masterworks just kept dr blood money and didn't yeah go and with got the, rid of the the, the, the subtitle the, the
1: subtitle the subtitle's dumb yeah
2: I mean, there is something to say that a lot of the novel is about, like, the just day-to-day life
0: of... Uh, of after. how we got along after the book. Yeah.
2: So there there is a degree to that, and we'll give Wilhelm some credit for that, but... And we'll give him credit for saying hell no to Earth's diurnal course. Yeah. And, and so we'll give him credit for that. And I think, you know, obviously we know that he was just trying to ride that theme with Dr. Strangelove, so... I would say that on the scale of Don Wolheim fuckery, this is not that bad compared yeah. compared to Eye in the Sky, for example. But it's definitely Don Wolheim fuckery, which you know we might want to have a, a spreadsheet to go along with Divorsopedia.
0: <laughs> in um,
1: PKD's barely legal, my new segment. <laughs> well, I'm bringing it back. I'm yeah. Bringing it. Back. yeah, and so we definitely need a graph. Yeah,
2: a graph of of the Don Wilheim fuckery is. I'm just definitely... saying.
1: I'm sure there are some cool artists that are out there that listen. Do me up a PKD's barely legal mockup. I'm just saying, it'd be cool. Yeah,
0: we could use a calendar.
1: Hell <laughs> yeah. I don't want to sell that calendar. I do. <laughs> Especially when we use the we get to the month of Doctor Blood Money. <laughs> right. um... Doctor Blood Month, am I right? Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> So, oh, wait, I just realized what, what you guys thought I meant by that. That's not what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to... I have no... Ooh, Jesus, it's hot in here. <laughs> I'm going
2: to go. So, uh, in 1967, when the Ganymede Takeover thing happened, we do know that uh, Scott Meredith Agency, like... Stopped... Wait, that was a real
1: event? What? what that, the, the Ganymede Takeover? Yeah. yeah. You didn't remember that time we had to play that marble game <laughs> oh, with all wait. those slugs? Oh, I was is confused for a second, but now I get is it. That, is so... that like
0: Black uh, Wall Street? <laughs> no. But I do think this is interesting. No one talks about it. Hey,
2: there's an interesting thing going on here, which is that when he tried to name Get Takeover, Earth's Diana Course, that Scott Meredith stepped in and said, no, there's no point in it, and or at least... So it just kind of shows some kind of interaction that we're seeing with... I like to see the different ways that we can learn about how PKD interacted with right. his agency and the editors and so on and so forth. And I think yeah. that stuff's interesting. We do have some general... We have a lot of PKD's thoughts on this book for two reasons. One is that there's the general letters that we got from the time that ended up in his papers, but there's also an introduction that he wrote to the book from 1979. So there's a lot of that. Uh, we also have two really cool quotes where he talks about the, the favorable reaction to Dr. Blood Money. And this is in a letter to Sandra Meisel. Shout out to Sandra, whoever you
1: are. Your husband comments favorably on Dr. Blood Money. I do not consider this a minor work of mine, although God knows I've written many minor works. It's a long novel and very complex, and is a SF version of a straight literary novel I long ago wrote. Do you want the truth? I like Dr. Blood Money better than anything else I've written. Roger Zelazny said that he thought it equal to Anna Karenina. Well,
0: uh... Whoa. <laughs> hold on. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. What was Zelazny smoking at the time, uh, David? <laughs> yeah,
2: I don't know what Zelaznitz was thinking at, at that point, but uh, and for, who knows if they were just like at a party or something, and they were like you know toasted
1: or
0: something, blowing smoke up each other's asses. Yeah, and like,
1: it's like like you know, Phil, this novel is like the next Anna Karenina. Yeah,
2: And they ended up <laughs> writing a book together So they may have been blowing smoke up each other's yeah. ass And he was like, hey man, Lord of Light Now that was the <laughs> shit, buddy
1: David, That's like the next David, you know, we've written a book together And I love you to death But I'm never going to tell you <laughs> That it's like Anna Karenina <laughs> <laughs> Well, first of all I'm never going to write a book like
2: Anna Karenina Because
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, this isn't like Anna Karenina either Right, right at all
2: Alright, so, yes That quote is weird uh, but at least it shows that he was very – he was proud of the book afterwards. He was proud enough to write an introduction for it later. And I think he was—he definitely did not feel that way about all the books from this era. Right. He, there was also in, – in 1977, Norman Spinrad wrote um, – shout out to Norman Spinrad, friend of the show uh, – wrote an introduction to Dr. Blood Money. And there was a response, and I think it was in an interview, somebody asked him about Spinrad's uh, comments on, or introduction, and PKD said
1: this. It just simply astounded me. I was astounded that anyone would think so highly of my writing, and also, he understood it so well. It wasn't simply complimentary, like saying that I wrote very well. It was his analysis of me as a metaphysical writer, something that I'm just becoming aware of myself that my writing is progressively assuming more and more metaphysical implications. I got up in the middle of the night and reread it. I found it so interesting. Because the book that I'm working on now, my Bantam novel in progress, is extraordinarily metaphysical.
2: And that was Vallis that he was working on at that time when he said that. So uh, there's some interesting things to unpack here. I didn't think this book was very metaphysical. Mm, not Not really. No. Other
1: than the fact that Hoppy seems to have some kind of telekinetic... Ability to yeah. do things from far away. Well, but you, that could be science fiction. Magneto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's true. That could just be science fictiony. So yeah, I don't. Yeah, think there really is no metaphysical. He teaching. doesn't have godlike yeah. powers. He has like psychic
2: powers. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's
1: true. I mean,
2: so no
1: cosmic puppet tree here.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Uh so I couldn't I tried really hard to track down the Norman Spinrad introduction and I couldn't find it. Okay. Cuz I was really interested in it.
0: Uh Do we know what edition it was in or
2: It was a 1977 edition so it may be I'm assuming it's the British edition from 1977. Okay. Because that's the year where it was first published in Britain. Oh, that would so, make sense. So, uh I don't know what edition it is, but I do and I did, So if anybody has it out there has a screenshot of it that they can send us, um, I know the last time I put this out there, Jesse from SF F Audio, like, had something to us like 20 minutes after we posted the episode. Nice. So, Jesse, if you're out there, uh, hook us up. What you got? Yeah, what you got? Um, but I definitely think it was cool. I mean, we know that Spinrad considered PKD one of his literary heroes. Yep. And was really influenced by him, and so I'm sure it was very complimentary and It is interesting that he i like this idea that he got up in the middle of the night in nineteen seventy nine or seventy seven or whatever it was, and reread dr
1: Blood Money <laughs> you know um I think he re he reread the introduction
2: At no, least that's he, what
1: that's what
0: I inferred yeah, from it yeah, he read the introduction
1: oh okay, 'cause he he was stoked that Zlazny was praising sorry spinrad was praising him
0: yeah. right. I kind of got the idea
2: from this quote that he got up and reread. re-read well,
1: the book. I mean, you do enough meth, you could probably get up and read, you
2: know. <laughs> yeah, and so it'll be interesting to—I don't know—I mean, because it's going to be like 2024 before we get to Vallis, but yeah, um, yeah. But when when we get there, it'll be interesting to see if like there is a Doctor Blood Money influence or kind of ideas because he was spurred to think about it. Um, and I do—I I, I don't know—I mean. The, just the main thing on this one is that i I just find it really interesting that he the metaphysical thing cause I just don't see it. I just don't see it in this book,
1: but
0: yeah,
2: um
1: that means you know what
2: time it is. All right, no, 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 no. It's time for the story breakdown down <laughs> whoa. <laughs>
0: uh, (ıyon) uh, uh, uh,
1: ( chann) uh,
0: uh, (loric) (laughs) (laughs) You thought I was going to do the Home (laughs) Improvement theme, didn't ( underside) you? Tell me what this book is (mumbles) about, Langhorn. (laughs) About? (laughs) Oh, (laughs) God. It's about something? All right. um, Here we go. (laughs) (sighs) Uh, Today we're talking about... Doctor Blood Money uh, with a stupid subtitle, and we we open in a, on a street in Berkeley where a dude is uh, watching crazy people go in and out of a psychiatrist's office, and he works at a TV shop, and then this one really crazy dude goes into the psychiatrist's office, then we follow that dude. And it turns out that this guy is Dr. or Professor or... Come on, Anthony. Give me the goddamn name. Dr. Bluthgeld. Bluthgeld. Later to be called Dr. Blood Money for five seconds. (laughs) Uh, But uh, we find out this guy is (laughs) legit insane. And then we meet a a flipper baby.
1: But I will say that that scene, I have some notes on because it's very funny. But go on.
0: (laughs) Then we go back across the street... We uh, find out that our, our friend is getting yelled at by his boss because he's looking at people and his boss doesn't like people looking at people or doing things or drinking or really doing anything. He's kind of a dick. <laughs> and uh, so the, But then we meet the flipper baby, Hoppy, Hoppy, Hoppy Harrington. That's a great name. Oh, oh and by the way, Stuart McConchie is our is our our fine uh, dark-skinned friend who has been doing all the looking. And they, we learn that Hoppy has just gotten a job. He's been hanging around the TV shop because he wanted to be a repairman. His lifelong dream was to be a TV repairman. And so he got the gig. And then we go to a diner, and Hoppy drinks a beer, goes into a catatonic state, and has a vision of the future or the afterlife, as he says. But it's really just like ten minutes into the future, because what happens after that whole rigmarole is that uh, nuclear bombs fall, and we don't know why, we don't know how, but it it goes very poorly. Everyone sort of dies except for our characters. In the, I mean, you can't have a book without if they all die right away. Well, you could if it's about the afterlife, but that's not what this is about. It's about a bunch of people that survive nuclear war, and then they form a society based on some really weird stuff and some really bad science. Like, uh, you can just form, uh, you can just make farms and stuff 20 miles away from where the nuclear blast happened, and everything's (laughs) going to be groovy even though it's a world war and everything blew up, there is no nuclear winter. There's none of that stuff that we we got in uh, the day after. It just uh, everything is kind of like there's nuclear freaks, and but everything else is fine. So, oh, now we have now I have to do the story. <laughs> all right. So, do do you need some help this time? No, I got it. I got it. It's it's all good. All right.
2: <laughs> No, there is the so, additional confusion that there is a chapter that is completely out of
0: order in this book.
1: Yeah. What? So, it's definitely the moment where I went, wait a fucking
0: minute, oh, where mean, are we? When, when we go to the future for no reason? Yeah, the, yeah.
2: yeah. when <laughs> chapter seven is suddenly chapter four.
0: Yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Whoa. so anyway, so... <laughs> all right, so we we have formed... After the nuclear bomb strikes, all our characters are affected... And we have many characters, uh, but it doesn't matter who they are because, <laughs> fuck it. Yeah. Uh, you know, all, all we really need to care about is that there's a guy named Hoppy, who's a flipper baby, who has magic <laughs> powers. There's a guy named Walt Dangerfield, who is uh, floating around Earth in a satellite. that he, w- he was supposed to go to Mars, but that didn't happen. Uh, there's a there's a girl named Edie, and she has a twin brother who lives inside of her, named Bill, who is the best character in the book, in my opinion. There is a guy named Stuart. Oh, wait. You already introduced... We don't care about him, anyway. He doesn't do anything. <laughs> All right, Stuart is... I mean, I kind of like the character, but he really is. Uh, then there's a bunch of other people who are kind of pointless as well. And they... It, what happens is that Hoppy is slowly building his powers, just like Anthony wishing stuff into the cornfield. Not this Anthony, the <laughs> Twilight Zone.
1: Although, but you best believe that if I had that power, <laughs> it's
0: on. So, uh, uh, as we go along, this uh, sort of pastoral, sort of story, day in the life thing that's happening, we're we're learning about how people survive in the. Aftermath of nuclear war, uh, Hoppy is slowly gathering his his power and becoming more Magneto-ish and learning <laughs> other powers as well. Like he can he can control not just metal but people. And Bluthgeld is totally insane. And apparently, even though it seems like he didn't have shit to do with the story, somewhere down the line, apparently he caused the entire war. Right. And so Hoppy kills him. Everyone's like, "That's real good, what you did there, Hoppy. Real good." Now, now, can you wish yourself into the cornfield? <laughs> yeah, good job. Get out. <laughs> and so the, uh, the I think we should honor um, so you, maybe Kwatu, who- aka Bill. Sort of a true. Uh, true. He's very Kwatu. It's true. <laughs> he says. He says, you know, I don't like Hoppy either. And even though I'm just a head inside of a little girl, I think I can take him out. And then uh, Bill kind uh, of gets uh, outside of the girl, Edie, and uh, takes out Hoppy. And they all live happily ever after. And Bonnie's a bitch. <laughs> all right, that's the end. I think all I right. nailed that one.
2: All right. <laughs> wow. So... All right, I got to move my hat
1: forward. Um, okay, so I know there's
0: a lot to unpack. there. I got to
1: undo my belt for this. Yeah, I
0: got to get my notes ready. I got to um, take down my pants for this.
2: Oh boy! So, Doctor Blood Money. Um, first of all, it, it was basically set up for me to really enjoy it for the fact of that I post that you're a
1: Holocaust denier. I got you.
0: No, that's you. Wait, wait. <laughs> that's you. are
2: you trying to put that on me? <laughs>
0: uh, okay, anyway. I don't think you can do that to a Jew. Yeah. <laughs> you can't just be like, you're a Holocaust denier.
2: No, now I just feel bad. I think there might be Jewish Holocaust. No. No. No, no there's not, not no. Jewish Holocaust deniers. But, uh, okay, so uh, there's definitely some of us who get called anti-Semitic. By, uh, you know, yeah. For, yeah, but that's a whole other That's thing. a different podcast. <laughs> different podcast. So... I really enjoy post-apocalyptic novels um,
0: in general. Who doesn't like a good post apocalypse
2: Right. And so for me, this just for... I'm more of a
0: Night of the Comet kind of guy.
1: Now, (laughs) I'm really more of a Night of the Creeps kind of (laughs) guy, a.k.a. Night of the Comet Part 2, not to be confused with Part 3, a.k.a. Slither. Yeah.
2: Ooh, nice. So, post-apocalyptic novels are my favorite sub-genre of horror. Um, so, okay. I, I, am right a, I am a huge fan of post-apocalyptic <laughs> novels. Some of my favorites being, like, Swan Song and... I definitely, of course, like The Road and and all that. Um, and we already talked about Through Darkest America, which I think is truly underrated. So I was really excited when I discovered that that was what this was about. Because I'll tell you guys, I did not read anything about Dr. Blood Money before starting to read it. I did not know what the plot was, didn't know anything about it. Right. It is one that I had just never read before. So, I mean, I knew the subtitle, about how we got a log after the bomb, but I didn't know how much... Of it took place in this post-apocalyptic world, and we'll get into the kind of weird utopia of which he was trying to set up. Because we have quotes from him about that, but we are also going to have to talk about its predictability, its ability to predict the future. Because that was one of the first things that PKD brought up in his introduction was that he didn't. He he talked a lot about how he wasn't able to predict things, but. I would say, in the sense of that, this is almost, and this is where I want to start out as, is that this is more of a surreal novel than a than a straight science fiction novel. Yeah. For for a couple of reasons. For one, you have Walt Dangerfield, or I almost said Rodney Dangerfield. Sorry, no. <laughs> Different book.
1: Different book. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> real. <laughs> Rodney Dangerfield as Hoppy Harrington? No, I think I think
2: I'd have Dangerfield in space. and would be like, "Hey, what's going on no, down I, there?" I just wanted no. to
1: imagine Rodney Dangerfield as, as, a, as a flipper a, baby. He, he, well, he said it.
2: He said it. God, why do you got to say fl- Okay. Anyways, um, this book is more surreal than it is. I mean, the fact that Dangerfield is up there in space for how long? There's no mention of the fact that he might, you know, I don't know, require food. Or, no, no, it's, or, or supplies. It's taken care of. Is it? Because yeah. I don't. I don't remember that. They,
0: he had a ten-year supply of food for him and his wife. Oh, because they I were supposed that. to go to Mars. Oh,
2: that's right. They were starting for Mars, and then, yeah, I read this a couple weeks ago. So you guys right.
0: just finished it, but yeah. but there is also. Frankly, I finished it like two hours before. We
2: Seriously? Started, so. Yeah, yeah. So, that, but there is also what you you talked about in the story breakdown. Which is that it there is some effects of the nuclear war, but then there's there's not. And then there's this idea that West Marin is like fine even though yeah, San Francisco is a smoking husk, like it's it's not flat. Far-
0: I mean several times he says it was just flattened. There's nothing there.
2: Right. So as a as this is definitely not hard SF. <laughs> no, not <laughs> at all. You you <laughs> kinda have to go with the kinda the surreal nature of this. And so, and I think... Well, it's, you, can, you can buy
0: it in sort of a naive naive way. Like a pre-1982, that's well, how I look at it.
2: Right. And then, then there's, there is an idea, too, that sometimes PKD is looked at as... There's people that I have know, for example, I've seen podcasts where they're like, Phil K. Dick was a prophet. And this is definitely not one of not those one books. Of those. Yeah. But he has this quote where he talked about that in the introduction.
1: Well... I predicted wrong when I wrote Dr. Blood Money back in 1964. Events that I foresaw never came about, and as you read read this novel, you'll see what I mean. But it's not the job, really, of science fiction to predict. Science fiction only seems to predict. It's like the aliens on Star Trek, all of whom speak English. A literary convention is involved here, nothing more.
2: Right. Hmm. So, I I like that you know, he, he. I like that we're getting a general comment on what he thinks about science fiction and predictability, uh, that it is not the job of science fiction to, to accurately predict the future. Uh, we're exploring ideas. And I think one of the things about Dr. Blood Money is that we get a lot of good themes and ideas of PKDs explored in this novel, a lot of them.
0: right?
2: And so I think that, that that's... One of the cool things, but of course he says uh, also, and this is something that I dealt with in my life because, as a radical environmentalist and as a serious environmentalist, there were there were times and there were periods of which I thought, you know, that the ecology of the world was going to collapse in in a short time, you know, and 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 there's there
0: the. Sort of the chicken little sky is falling kind of thing, well, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, what
2: I'm talking about is that I think through a lot of the nuclear age, people thought w- nuclear war was going to come any day. That it, And I think PKD was going through a thing that I kind of went through when I was younger, which is, you know, I basically, I, I was kind of in the same, I knew that the environmental problems like climate change and all that, as bad as they are, I just assumed that it we was... would be
0: dead long before any of that happened.
2: Right. And that was something that when I was kind of first getting into those issues, it's something that I dealt with. And I think he deals with that here, um, when he, and it's
1: starting out, it, of course. I'm amused, however, to see what specifically I got wrong. Worst of all, I totally misread the future of the manned space program. But this only shows how rapidly history unfolds. In Dr. Blood Money, I have one American circling the world forever. This is obvious nonsense. Either there would be many Americans and many Russians, for that matter, or none at all. Of course, the major item that I got wrong is the end of the world. Back in 1964, I was expecting it at any time. I kept checking my watch. Horace Gold, who edited Galaxy Magazine, once chided me for anticipating global wipeout within the next week. That was back around 1954. I anticipated it by 1964. Well, such were the fears of the times, right? Right now, we have other worries. Our problem seems to be paying our debts with incredibly inflated dollars, finding gas for our cars, much more mundane worries, less cosmic. Okay. Oddly, no, wait, go ahead. Oddly, these are the sort of worries that assail the characters in Dr. Blood Money In their post-World War III world There are horses pulling cars Eyeglasses are rare and treasured A man who manufactures cigarettes is honored wherever he goes Of supreme value is someone who can fix things Society has reverted, but not to the brutal level that we might expect Rather, it has become, a, it has become rural in nature The vast cities are gone, and in their place, a sort of countryside exists that is not awful at all I must add, however, that in no sense does it resemble any world that we actually have. But then, of course, we haven't had World War III.
2: Right, and so I think that that... Yeah, and I think what's going on here is he's setting up the idea that this is a hopeful novel in a weird way. That it is unlike most apocalyptic novels, that there are large stretches where it's like, you know, it wouldn't be too bad living in Marin County after, after this all happened. And I think...
0: That's because he skips all that stuff.
2: <laughs> yeah, right, right. He he does because we go, we have some of the
0: yeah. There's no scene stuff. where
1: Hoppy gets jumped by marauders and they're like, "Let's take his arms and legs off." We don't, we don't even see Hoppy get out
0: of the goddamn basement. Hoppy's a Rich. fucking mouth breather. Okay. <laughs> Jesus, I, like... I do. I do want to get uh, one thing out of the way that I I really did appreciate about this, and he mentioned in that quote is that. As a person that was basically the last job I was supposed to take was uh, with Cirque du Soleil as a handyman on, on a world. And as, as someone that was sort of a handyman, it's nice to see those skills appreciated it, it, to the point where they want to have a handyman, day, all that stuff. And that they're considered the one of the most important. I, I, I personally. Well, Dick
2: loves handyman. Because they're like all over the books. And then eventually we're going to yep. get to Galactic Pie Healer, which is all he, about that.
1: He very oh, yeah. much values those that can fix.
2: Yeah. Right. Which was a big thing in Martian Time Slip mm-hmm. as well. And this is, since we know these are back to back, I don't know what was going on if he had like a neighbor who was a handyman or something that he was like, No, that guy's really cool. At the house yeah, they hello. <laughs> yeah, he <laughs> was constantly <laughs> calling somebody over to the hovel like, Can you right. fix the hinge <laughs> on my weird shack so so the demonic robot never mind, God won't never mind look at the
0: me. yeah never mind the godhead over
2: there <laughs> right. Just fixed the squeaky door right i don't know what his handyman experience was there but he obviously likes handyman a lot and you know we do see i mean there is an effect of the war because he i mean he does mention all these things the the mm-hmm. horses pulling cars and the the treasured cigarettes Trucks. The war-burning trucks and, like, whoa, there's, you know, the, the fact that there's no cello, right? Right. Because, well, if you had a cello, you're sticking it in your car <laughs> to get across town. Yeah. And and so those those are all things that are definitely part of, of, of the war thing. But, um, you know, the, these theories and these ideas that he's exploring, I think, here, a lot of it, is, I think... Makes, one of the things that makes Dr. Blood Money very different as a post-apocalyptic novel is that there are lots of moments of hope, uh, weirdly enough, in there. And he has a quote about that.
1: Yes. In my opinion. In my opinion, this is an extremely hopeful novel. It does not posit the end of human civilization as a result of the next war. People are still around, and they're still coping. Those who survive, anyhow are fairly lucky in their new lives. What's interesting is the subtle change in the relative power status of the survivors. Take Hoppy Harrington, who has no arms or legs. Before the bomb hits, Hoppy is marginal in terms of power. He is fortunate if he can get any kind of job at all. But in the post-war world, this is not the case. Hoppy is elevated by stealthy increments until, at last, he is a menace to a man not even on the planet's surface. Hoppy has become a demigod, and a complex one at that. He's not really evil... But, hit the, yeah. but that his power is evil.
2: Hmm. Yeah, all right. So that's a really interesting quote, and we get some ideas yeah, on... I, I
0: don't agree with that, though. I mean, it's Hoppy's... It's not the powers that are evil, it's... It's that Hoppy it's, has a, a bone to pick with society. Yeah, it's Hoppy's attitude that's that's evil.
2: Well, in Hoppy, it, one of the things that is evil about Hoppy is that he doesn't want society to come back. He he wants it to, to stay... keep it. Yeah, he wants
0: powerful he's right valued. because there's a power shift he's, he's
1: now the most valuable strongest one in the community right they're yeah. more reliant on him than they are on anyone else he also is kind of a douche. kind of a douche well
2: yeah and um
1: but yeah and i think the
2: thing that's and, and it's funny because while well, everyone else is feeling kind of like hopeful about things and like oh you know we're getting along and we're starting to rebuild things he's he's got hoppy has worries that this will all go away and he doesn't he doesn't want things to change he
1: doesn't want them to change back to the way they were because we spend the first i don't know the world's longest prologue (laughs) discussing how much everybody in the repair shop treats him like shit right right Right, and...
0: <coughs> um, Especially Makanchi. I oh, mean, yeah, Makanchi's a real dick. He's a really mean guy. <laughs> yeah,
1: well, he...
2: And he's... I mean, he's a businessman, and he's coming to there. We do have quotes about McConchi and we, we want to get into that. I do. I, I'm, yeah. I'm
0: interested in that character because I think uh, Dick did a, a good job of bringing in a, a black character that is neither... Like, like he did in the past, he made a black character like totally heroic or, as you saw, as other books did in the time, making black people villains, you know, is very much making a real person. This this guy has agency. This guy is a real character.
2: Was I think the last time we dealt with this was uh, Eye in the Sky. Eye in the Sky. Yeah, yeah. Eye in the Sky was the one that,
1: Well, yeah. let me tell you, Larry, if you're interested, what PKD said about Stuart McConchie. Awesome. Oh. My favorite character in the novel is the TV salesman, Stuart McConchie, who happens to be black. In 1964, when I wrote Dr. Blood Money, it was daring to have a major character be a black man. My god, how much change has taken place in these recent years! But what an excellent change. One we can be proud of. In my first novel, Solar Lottery, I had a black man as captain of a spaceship. Daring, indeed, for a novel published in 1955... Stewart is, in my opinion, the focus of the novel, and he appears first. It is through his eyes that we initially see Dr. Bluthgild, which is to say, Dr. Bloodmoney. Stewart's reaction is simple. He's seeing a lunatic, and that's that. Bonnie Keller, however, knowing Dr. Bluthgild more intimately, holds a more complex view of the man. Frankly, I tend to see Do- Dr. Bluthgild as Stuart McConchie sees him. I am, so to speak, Stuart McConchie, and at one time I was a TV salesman at a store on Shattuck Avenue in Berkeley. Like Stuart, I used to sweep the sidewalk sidewalk in front of the store in the early morning, noticing the cute girls on their way to work. All right, PKD, just relax. (laughs) Calm down. So I do have to confess to an oversimple view of Dr. Blutgeld. I hate him, and I hate everything he stands for. He is the alien and the enemy. Well, what if Dr. Blutgeld was a sexy lady?
0: Then would he feel
1: the same? That anyway, is not what PKD said, let's any- just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really hated that, that maniacal doctor, but damn dad ass. Anyway, I cannot fathom his mind. I cannot understand his hates. It is not the Russians I fear. It is the Dr. Bluthgilts, the Dr. Bloodmoneys in our own society that terrify me. I am sure that to the extent that they know me, or would know me, they hate me back
0: and would do exactly to me what I would do to them. Okay. So. That's the thing about Blufgeld is we never really understand what the hell he did. We're never we we know he blew up some bombs maybe in the atmosphere, but that doesn't have any effect on the story other than he's a douche because Hoppy isn't isn't it doesn't have his physical deformities because it's from something else, and we don't have any other characters that were affected by his 1972 disaster which doesn't have any any we don't have a clear idea reading as to what it was that happened.
2: Right. Um you know it it's funny Mc, McConchi is a character I like that he is kind of complicated that um and I, and I do see that PKD is definitely seen him as the character we're supposed to kind of see the novel through.
0: Ooh, but he has too many bad ideas to be like uh, <laughs> Anthony was talking. Can you do that quote from the book? Which one? The uh, the ten thousand years ago.
1: Oh, the the yeah. Give me give me one second. The one the the one where he's talking about radiation. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, well, you're looking for that. I,
1: I think yeah. I found it. Okay. Once upon a time, he thought all the people on Earth were white. And then some horse's ass set off a high altitude bomb back, say, around ten thousand years ago, and some of us got seared, and it was permanent. It affected our genes, so here we are today. I was like, "Did he just say that he's black because the bomb went right. off?" Right, I, I know. <laughs> he's he was, like, "What?"
0: He was doing a scenario there, or you know, uh, an idea that he thinks other people might think. Sure, but it's still, you know. Yeah, of, Stuart. Stuart it, has this almost identifies as that character. S- that's a thought.
1: Correct, and and Stuart has like this weirdly built-in self-hate mm-hmm. that I think he projects onto Hoppy quite a bit.
0: Well, yeah,
1: <laughs> rightly so, because later on in the book, you're like, mm, you know what?
0: Well, we know Hoppy's Fuck a terrible Hoppy uh, Hoppy's a terrible person, but his prejudice starts prior to mm-hmm. Hoppy doing anything. Oh yeah,
1: no, he's he is primed to hate Hoppy from the moment he. Wheels well, himself re- into the repair Remember shop. The,
0: the first thing he does, really, with Hoppy is misidentify Hoppy as being a so-called freak because of what happened in 1972. And Hoppy's like, "That no, it was the thalidomide." Yeah, yeah I, he was born, I was born. I was born this
1: way. Yeah. He also had nothing to do with. He also device. goes out of Spirit his of way. 72. He also yeah. goes out of his way to narc him out. Yeah. When when they get back to the repair shop, he, he's like, "Well, i was just saying that he had a beer on lunch, and I yeah. know, Mr. Ferguson, you got these rules about not having a beer on lunch." It's right. it's, it's... <laughs> right. now granted, I think Hoppy yeah. was being a prick at the at the restaurant too, but Makanji just goes out of his way. But if if Dick is saying that we're supposed to identify with this character, I don't want to identify with that. To a degree, yeah, so, I don't think I necessarily want to identify
0: with Makanji.
1: Realistically, I probably identify mostly.
0: With the psychiatrist. With right. uh Well, that's me. I, I, the character I identi- I identify with is the psychiatrist.
1: Yeah, I would say the psychiatrist, uh, or you know, yeah. if I just want to be cool and say I identify with Bill Keller. <laughs> <That's nice. laughs> I too am a fetus inside this little girl <laughs> with long flowing hair. Oh, I know.
2: Uh, I'm going to get back to uh, Bill Keller in a little bit, but um,
0: my favorite character in the whole. Yeah.
2: Episode. So, because there's some really heavy themes going on there on PKD's life. Um, really? Yes. But uh, I just want to, the last thing I want to quote uh, <laughs> PKD on, and I'll just read it myself because it's a short one, but, and uh, he says at the end, he says, as the novel depicts, despite the war, the war didn't that did not happen, that did not in fact happen, it is a good future. I would have enjoyed being there with them, In their microcosm, their post-war West Marin world. So that's it does read that
0: way. Yeah, as sort of a fantasy. Mm -hmm. You know, back to small-town life, that stuff. And and the fact that he's he's drawing his knowledge, he's being intentionally ignorant by drawing his knowledge of nuclear bombs from Nagasaki and and the bombs dropped on Japan, instead of how the bombs were during the six. You know, where they were so much more powerful. The devastation would be so much more radical, and and you know the nuclear winter would happen and stuff. That he's ignoring all those. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, he is ignoring those things because I think he just wanted it. I'm I'm imagining he went on some like weekend trip to West Marin with with Anne at that point. Well, no, he lived up there. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying.
0: Yeah, and I mean, he actually lived in the in the the area that he's talking for a short period of time. Uh, uh, no,
2: that's where they had their house. That's where. The- oh, okay, okay, okay. Okay, sorry. Um, so I'm going to do kind of some lightning round and some things that I think we should talk about uh, from inside the book. Uh, one thing that's interesting to me is that the war started with Cuba. It was... Uh, there's a re- reference on page two to a
0: draft. It's really vague, but yeah.
2: Yeah, which was kind of interesting. Um... Uh, fun. There, there's some uh, wackadoo science in this one. We haven't really. There's ta- plenty
0: of wackadoo. Yeah, everything.
2: There's, in this. there's lots of wackadoo. Everything. We haven't talked about the wackadoo stuff in a while. But one of my favorites that made me laugh was was uh, Stockstill talks about a case of advanced insidious schizophrenia,
0: <laughs> which uh, made me laugh. Right when he's talking to Dangerfield, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And Is that the paranoid sensitiva?
0: It was the Paranoid
2: Sensitiva, um, which I just thought was a really funny one. We just talked about the Spirit of 72 thing is a really interesting thing, how there was this one nuclear accident that's kind of vague um, of what happened. And on page 49 of the Mariner edition, it says, We are all living in Bruno's accident and Bruno's accident now. We are all Spirit of 72. Right, <laughs> and I really thought that was a really interesting thing, and but it also has to do with the origin story of Hoppy because everyone believes that Hoppy, like we were talking about, became a freak because of it, because of it, and he didn't, and that was that. I think that was one really interesting part of the story that that really kind of carried it forward.
0: Right. Uh, well, David, I was telling Anthony this earlier. I think a lot of this book happens between the pages. You know, like, we hear stuff like, you know, McConchie being in the, uh, under the sidewalk and Hoppy being in the basement trapped. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden they're free and we never hear about it. You know, we hear about Bonnie going insane when when everything first strikes. She has sex with the one dude. And then she's just walking along. But we never get any resolution or anything else from that. This whole, this whole story... Happens off
2: the right, and I I did notice that there were a lot of elements that I didn't get when I first read it. That when I was reading about the book, I was like, oh, okay, now I get what's going on. And such as, such as, um, some of the aspects of well, like the hoppy thing, like I didn't really understand where he came from at first, like the flammidified thing just kind of flew over my Uh, head when I was reading it. And I did believe the spirit of seventy two thing at first about him, and I had to oh, kind of really? yeah, I had to kind of go back. And one of the times he was like, "Well, that didn't. That's not what happened to me. I just assumed that it, it, he happened." But there's also the confusing nature of the fact that there's a chapter that's just completely out of place. Um, uh, well, and well, Evan, let,
0: let me give you my best example. Okay, is when uh, McConchie is in the basement with the guy that's dying from radiation. Mm-hmm. And he he won't go out, and all he cares about is money. And then all of a sudden he's working for the the electronic trap guy. I wanted the story, how he got out of the basement. How he, not not necessarily physically, but psychologically, how that happened. Mm-hmm. And there's none, you know, that's what I'm talking about. It's all off the page. Is that the, the story really happens in between what Dick wrote.
1: What also, you, you mean in that weird space between the world's longest prologue and when the book actually starts?
0: Well, I mean, I mean, all the storylines mm-hmm. seem to happen in between what Dick wrote about. He writes up to a point, and then everything that I would consider interesting happens off the page. Got it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's like I said earlier, you know, a low-budget movie where you see the guy on screen having stuff thrown at him. He's like, that battle over there is going really badly. Oh, my God, it's so epic. If only you could see it. I, totally I feel, the sci-fi I channel version
2: of Dune. <laughs> yeah. how I feel this novel. Yeah. Like, they're missing... Like, we're missing a lot like of Like, the,
0: the best stuff is happening off the screen. Sure. Or off the...
2: All right, well, the next thing that I, I, I've got is um, some... There were... Some moments where I thought the writing, the prose, was actually really good for BKD, especially on page 59 of Mariner Edition. I love this part where he said, where, while Dangerfield is uh, talking to his microphone, he struggled up, disconnected himself from the straps, and saw through the port, the world below, clouds in the ocean, and the globe itself. Here and there, here, uh, here and there on it, matches were lit. He saw the puffs, the flares. Fright overcame him. He sailed silently through space, looking down at the pinches of burning, of burning scattered about. He knew what they were. It's death, he thought. Death lighting up spots, burning up the world's life, second by second. He continued to watch. Uh, both times he watches the bombs. Right. Um, is uh, really good and interesting. And, and, you know, considering that we just, you know, rec- we haven't, I'm sure by this time it'll be released our episode on canical for Leibowitz. the idea that th- th- these are cycles that repeat mm-hmm. um this is obviously a much shorter scale that we're talking about here, um the repeating scale, but i i I definitely like that that part of it, but I also just think that the prose is really good here yeah and- i
0: I actually thought of you guys when I was reading one section uh where. I don't, I, I don't remember Paige or anything like that, but he's talking about how the, the people are not only born with deformities, but there are certain type deformities where they have to actually each other mm-hmm. and, and become these masses of different people sharing organs. And I was like, oh, Anthony's going to love this stuff. It's <laughs> true. I did. Yeah. <laughs> it, was almost, it was almost, you guys remember when we were doing World Jones Made, you were talking about like, I want this this circus this carnival to be the whole novel, and I felt like he touched on that on that sort of same vibe with the started describing the uh, the sort of body horror stuff that post new right. What do you think of that?
2: I think that stuff was great. Um, I really
0: enjoyed it. Was it. Well written too. I yeah, mean, he really does those those horror elements really well, but he does them so seldom.
2: Um, oh, and I did find the part where he's talking about getting out of the basement. <laughs> um, and uh, what's funny, too, is in, in that scene, by the way, he gets a, a dig in on Ann Ra- uh, Anne, Anne, Anne Rand. Ann Rand. <laughs> Ann Rand. Uh, Ann Rand. And he says on page 65, of the Mariner edition No one would be dependent on big society. It would be all small towns and individual individuality, like Ann Rand talked about <laughs> in her books. It would be the end of conformity in the mass mind and junk. No more factory produced junk like cartons of color 3D television sets, which have fallen on all sides on of him. Top. Yeah. And so I like the idea, too, that he was projecting future TVs. You know, <laughs> uh, in 19. what it was like, late 70s TV, they were going to have 3D TVs. Right. <laughs> we definitely get. Um, a lot of the societal themes coming up here. Now the gulf, on page 82, now the gulf was wider. It was obvious that he did not actually comprehend the meaning of most activities conducted around him. He had been brooding, for, exi- for instance, about the yearly trip to the Department of Motor Vehicles for his auto license renewal. Why did that make me laugh? <laughs> Guys. Guys. <laughs> the mention of the auto license renewal. Remember the letters um, for Three Stigma of Palmer Eldred? (laughs) I think this was on PKD's mind. (laughs) It's like, God damn it! You know what, though? After the war, I won't have to worry about renewing the license on my car. (laughs) Um, So I found that to be really... Kind of funny, right? Because wasn't
0: it, he had his car towed twice, right?
2: And that's why, and his phone was disconnected mm-hmm. right before th- when he was riding three stigmata. <laughs> so, so that just that line in there made me laugh. Uh, what do you guys think about uh, Dan- the idea that Dangerfield is playing music and being DJ to the world? Like, I thought that was kind of neat. I've, I thought that was I neat like that idea. Yeah, like yeah. he
0: he connected the entire world.
2: Yeah, and he was giving, like, weather updates, and he was he was basically, like, the closest thing to an internet this this kind of feature has, right. like, he, you know, and I, I kind of like that part.
0: Yeah, at the, it, well, at the time, closest to a TV. That yeah,
2: was, like, with get. news and, yeah. But it also
0: harkened back to, like, fireside chats and the uh, radio dramas and stuff like that before TV, so it, it made sense.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Anthony. Any thoughts on the Dangerfield character and the whole communicating from the satellite?
1: I think it's an interesting idea that I felt didn't really do anything for me later on. When Hoppy's whole plan is to kill him, <laughs> and take, um, but if his, you set his that up,
0: wasn't just to kill him, but take over his life right. and be. But if you set that up as the, the, the framing
1: device for the novel and kind of exploring the well, this is jumping ahead. I That's just, fine. it would have Jump functioned ahead. better at a framing device, in my opinion, rather than just being a background. It, 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 right. it wants to be important, but Dick doesn't make it as important as I think he thought it was. Right. I don't know. I mean,
2: for me, uh, on page 105 of the Mariner edition, there's a scene that, that I think explains some of the things that I think are important about it. Um, the rows of seated people listened intently to the initial words from Dangerfield began to emerge from the static. Uh, lice type typhus is said to be breaking out in Washington up to the Canadian border, so stay away from there, my friends. If this report is true, it's a very bad sign indeed. Also, a report from Portland, Oregon, more on the cheerful side. Two ships arrived from the Orient. I like the idea that, and he says here, the listening room room full of people stirred with excitement. I just, I really thought this was a neat scene. Like it doesn't.
1: Yeah. Well, to- I don't think it's a bad scene. I just think that if Hoppy's plan is to become Walt Dangerfield, then we should spend more time with Walt Dangerfield and kind of understand that, that character a little bit better.
0: Make him, yeah, less of a this stock book, character. This book has several
1: a... characters that I could not give less of a fuck about. Walt <laughs> right.
0: well, Dangerfield's not one of those. No, he's not. But, yeah. uh, you know, he's, he's essential in a way, but you're right. More time with him would have made it, would have given us more of a connection Right, and, so, and made it more valuable. So, how about a character you did give a fuck about, uh, Bill Keller, and Bill, Edie and Bill, yeah. Edie and Edie and Bill but not Bonnie, not Bonnie <laughs> at all. What a horrible, horrible, or, or horribly written character.
1: Or maybe say. we should talk about Mister Asturias, who's in it for a chapter and then never <laughs> comes back again.
0: Because <laughs> he and then murdered. gets
1: murdered off again. page again, again,
2: off page. All right, so Edie and Bill <laughs> in on page. Uh, 140. In the years since the war, Dr. Stillwell had examined hundreds of funny people, which I... By the way... <laughs> funny people. Funny is. people. <laughs> it's not any worse than your flipper babies, but... Um, well, flipper babies
0: is horrible.
2: Yeah, That's and funny point. people's not great. Uh, many strange and exotic, uh, and exotic variants on human life form, which flourished now under a more tolerant, although smokily-veiled sky. And then... So, this whole thing about the the twins, um, Edie said, I'm glad I have a brother. He keeps me from being lonely. When mm-hmm. he's asleep, I feel him there. I know he's there. What do we know about Philip K. Dick's relationship with his sister? Uh, Philip K. Dick lost his twin sister when she was only a few months old. Mm-hmm. And Jane, his twin Jane, and this became a recurring theme in Dick's fiction throughout time, is this idea of this ghost twin or this ghostly figure in his life because he forever felt like he missed or lost something out? And I think Bill Keller becomes more of an interesting character if you know that. Well, in the, in the why scene. do you
0: think he gender swapped it? Um, I don't know,
2: but I, I don't even know that he's necessarily thinking about it consciously. Consciously, yeah. But
0: um, I, I love their relationship. I love that Bill is a little kid that can talk to dead adults, and that really comes through with his character, where he's like still asking for approval. After he gets out, he's like, can I, can I do this? Can I go to school? Can I be a normal person? And, and he's still a child, but he has all this knowledge and all this power. Mm-hmm. It's really, a, I think it's the best thing he did. in this.
2: Yeah, it's definitely a really great character, and it would be interesting to see a novel built around the character that has like kind of a quatu, <laughs> you know, going on. So I'm gonna skip a bunch of the things that I have that I think are a little less important than I thought they were before. <laughs> but uh, as far as Doctor, let's talk about um, Bruno, Doctor Bluthgeld. I like this line on page 196 where he's having a conversation with Bonnie I believe and he says Dr. Boothgeld says yes it's all the po- power in the world rolled together i am the center god willed it to be that way and then she says what a mistake god made <laughs> i like that line a lot i think that's a really um i
0: think uh i think dick was having a good time making jokes with Gild. mm mm-hmm. cuz you know, we've read enough of this to know he has a weird sense of humor. And so when the guy's like, I'm the cause of the war, and you should all pray, and all that stuff, I think he was making himself laugh. Right. Yeah. I, I, I think he used that character as sort of a, a joke.
2: Yeah, and I, I would agree. And I think Dr. Bluthgeld is, well. he's not there a ton in the story, mm. he, um, I think he's worthy of having the title of the book because he's, you know... He feels guilt and conscience for everything that's happening in this world. Now, do you believe he actually started the? I don't know. I think he believes it, and I think everyone else believes it. So I'm gonna. I guess yeah. Uh,
0: you know the the bombs that go off uh, when they're when Bonnie and what's face are in the in the forest. They they don't have the power or anything like a nuclear bomb. But do you think that's Blufield doing that or? Because it's not explained
1: in yeah. any other way.
0: so I think it's
2: left open to interpretation that he could really be the person or it could be something that people are mistaking. Right. But I, I think... Uh, I like that the,
0: the characters later are like, uses used his magic to try to restart the war.
2: Right. <laughs> so. Right. Yeah, I think there's lots of really interesting things that came up uh, through with him. And one crucial page, and this is the last thing that I have to read from the book, but if I would point people to um, a series of pages that have a lot to do with what are the overall themes of the book, it would be 212 through 214, and not only is there really good prose on those pages, but I think the theme, and this may be a little on the nose, so um, you guys can tell me if you think this is too on the nose, but I believe it's Edie speaking, and... No, it's Bonnie. Bonnie's having these thoughts. The sky now had become sooty black. She remembered that color. It was never enti- It had never entirely departed anyhow. So there's some ex- right. example of the nuclear winter. It had merely lessened. Our fragile world, Bar- Bonnie thought, we labor to build up after the emergency this puny society from our tattered school books, our quote-deluxe our quote, cigarettes, our wood-burning trucks... It can't stand much more punishment. It can't stand this that Bruno is doing or appears to be doing. One blow again directed at us, and we will be gone. The brilliant animals will perish. All the new odd species will disappear as suddenly as they arrived. Too bad, she thought, with grief. It's unfair. Terry the verbose dog, him too. And maybe we were too ambitious. Maybe we shouldn't have dared to try and rebuild and go on. And that gets into the canicle for Liebowitz themes of the sure. of repeating itself and of course that's also a reminder that we forgot to talk about the super intelligent cats and dogs and the talking dogs <laughs> and the
0: <laughs> stuff that I'd I forgotten know, that's about all, that's all secondary tertiary stuff
2: world building stuff but i actually thought that stuff was funny so that's where you get some of the it was peaking. funny
1: but it kills the feel of the feel of the book for me
0: well, it, when it doesn't we, really fit in anywhere it's it, a it, it little too
1: fantastical bullshit. Right.
2: Yeah, but see, I was fine with that because for me this book felt more fantastical and I I wasn't looking for a gritty hard I wasn't looking for McCarthy's The Road of, I wasn't either
0: but talking yeah. dogs. Yes, you, Do you really don't like to revisit the very, adjustment team. Yeah, yeah I was going to say it, it's very fantasy and, and not science fiction. So. Yeah. It's a hey, Homer find your
1: soulmate. <laughs> <laughs> it's that Simpsons episode.
2: Right.
0: Wait a second, dogs don't talk. Chuck? Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Alright, so um, we gotta get into I think, I, is there any other themes or things you guys want to go into or are we getting into our uh, ratings?
0: Well, yeah, I mean there's a lot to this book, but I, I think we we covered the necessary part. I mean, there's little nitpicks here and there that we could talk about, little sections, but I think we I think we covered it. I kind of.
2: I think some of the things that are surreal and weird about it are one of the things that I like about this novel because there are literally. I mean, there are shelves. I mean, there are libraries full of *Alas Babylon* and *On the Beach* and, and *Swan Songs*. And yeah. there's all kinds of post-apocalyptic novels like that. But I like the the edge that this one has—a little bit of a surreal feel to it, and and. I I like that about this novel, and for that,
0: it does it does have a a literary kind of read. Like th- mm-hmm. that entire center section where it's just sort of day in the life. This is what this is what the people do. We're not really doing story. You know, Hoppy is becoming more and more evil. Other than that, it's just this is how the society functions now. These are the weird animals, you know. The
2: so on a scale on, on the I like P- that. on the PKD literary to pulp scale. Oh, yeah, I think this is you know ten being literary, one being pulp. I'm saying this is like a six or a seven. Seven. Yeah, yeah. it's like a six. Yeah, yeah. On on the somewhere in there. I think I mean, he's new, at, new new rating scale. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we might have to, well, when we do the first 10 years episode, we'll have yeah. to do that on, on all of them. Mm-hmm. And that just, I just thought of that. So, um, well,
0: I, I, yeah. It's certainly not not a plot-driven novel in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: But I think the themes are pretty well woven together. I think the only problem is the chapter four that should have been chapter... <laughs> yeah, chapter seven. And I know Lampy brought this up on his podcast um, that the and he, I, he, and I both have done some research and on on uh, why that happened. And I did not find any notes on like if that was just like a printing error or.
0: And it's still not corrected.
2: It hasn't been corrected in any
1: editions. It's the same. Very, very fucking confusing. Someone fix it. Yeah, so,
0: yeah. I I agree with Anthony that <laughs> that shit was out of nowhere.
1: Yeah, it really was. I got to a point and thought I had skipped over. A ton yeah. of stuff, <laughs> and when we get to our final, like, opinions, I'll explain. But, yeah, I'd say it's a six on the pulp-to-literary scale.
2: Um. All right, so I'm going to give this novel five out of five Famoclius Carts. Wow. But it is barely getting that fifth star because I guess there were some problems, but all the problems that I had were were so minor that the things that I think are pluses uh, uh, did it for me. And I definitely, this one hit a lot of sweet spots for me, so that's one of the reasons why I think I, I liked it so much. But overall, I, I, I think this is one of his stronger works, and hmm. I think it's one that uh, has themes that I'll be thinking about for a long time. But, uh, Anthony, what was your <coughs> your rating
1: I'm going to give it three diurnal rhythms out of uh, five. <laughs>
0: diurnal.
1: The, the, the missing chapter, or the misplaced chapter, fuck, kills me. Fuck, it have... fucking kills me. It, it, it feels like, the, like I said already, it feels like I read the world's longest prologue, and then, oh yeah. hey, by the way, the book started. And realistically, the book should have started after the bombs drop in the first place. No, it, it, it doesn't... Yeah, we always could have gone back. We always could have gone stuff. back to some of these experiences of McContry remembering... Is it McContry? Yeah. That's yeah. stuck underground with their dying boss and, and all these other memories and these memories that Hoppy has where, you know, Stuart you, is um, kind of talking down to him in the bar and then, you know, yeah. Stuart will remember that scene in the restaurant... Sorry, not the bar, the restaurant where he goes into his trance. All of that for like the first 80 pages could have just been internal monologue inner monologue and remembering sure. and thoughts like i didn't need all of that build up to the bombs dropping it and then again with the missing chapter it's like watching a movie where 10 minutes of the film is just cut from the movie and then is put into a different spot and you're like well what the f- what
2: happened now now the the chapter still missing but if it had been in the right order do you think it would have would have
0: well, it's no, been, would have been I better, even
2: it would have but... been
1: better. But even as it stands, it I don't to... feel that this book starts until like page eighty-five. Right, and and well, I don't. I will agree well... with you.
2: I will agree with you that it would have been better oh, if well, if all that had been flashback. And
1: we have all these tertiary <sighs> characters that like. Why does why does Gil get his own chapter? Because he sleeps with Bonnie. I don't, Bonnie. Gil, the, 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 the eyeglasses salesman, I, mm. n- none of these characters really matter in in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. The characters that do matter, Edie and Bill, Dr. Bluthgild, Hoppy, Stewart, five solid characters that we spend the majority of our time Dangerfield. with. Dangerfield. Dangerfield. You know, I just could not be bothered to to really get invested in these characters because I kept wondering, okay, well, what's going on with Hoppy? Where are we at with Stuart? And, yeah. and and you look at Bluthgeld, you look at Stuart, you look at Edie and her brother, like, all these characters have kind of this relationship building towards the end of the book, but it gets kind of lost with these other characters that, to me, don't
0: really matter. Yeah. So, yeah, well, three... I think that's what makes it... That's what gives it its literary flair, is those extra... Characters?
1: Oh, you mean a lot of pointless meandering? Yes, sure. I, I do mean. I, that. I would agree with that. I specifically
0: mean yeah. that.
2: <laughs> well, and I and I kind of I liked the world building picture that it painted. That, that I liked seeing different aspects of that world. So I think that worked. That's why it wasn't a deal breaker for me. Right. Um, and, and if you're worried about just what drives the narrative forward, um, I definitely see. Why
0: this I, I not, understand what you're saying, for you. yeah, I
2: understand <laughs> what you're saying, Anthony, and I don't think that you're wrong to, to think that way. I'm just saying why it managed to work for me was that
1: um, classic David. Here's why you're wrong.
2: No, I'm not. <laughs> no, Dude,
1: I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm not. not I totally understand.
2: I absolutely am saying um, so. Uh, but I would say I would say you're not wrong for for your feelings at all. I just I think it worked for me because I I liked the painting. The world-building painting that it that it that the characters created. Sure, sure. I definitely think um, it would have been a stronger novel if it was in the right order. All right, Larry. Uh,
0: I'm I'm going with three um, flipper babies. <laughs> I really I really want to give it two and a half. Wow, but really? Yeah. Too much happens for me. Too much happens off the page. I would agree. Well, I, I'm I'm in agreement with you on that. Just uh, there's uh, it, Not only just to add w- to what Anthony said, but too much is off the page for me. I want those sections. I want to know what actually happens. Not just the build-up to what happens, and then <laughs> we cut away to something else. Two
1: guys standing in a field going, well, that was weird, huh?
0: Yeah. <laughs> a, that's how this book yeah, goes. Yeah. yeah. This book smash oh God, cuts there's this, real hard. This, there's this huge problem, and then it cuts to... Wow, thank God we got rid of that problem. <laughs> <laughs> it poochied itself right out of the
1: narrative. I gotta go, my planet needs me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so that that is my beyond what Anthony said. Uh, you know, three is the most... I think three is generous. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I feel. Okay. Yeah. I, I like it. All right, guys,
1: <laughs> let's get our gross casting couch out and uh,
0: cast this Honestly, movie. Honestly, for me, I was thinking about this when I was reading this. I would not make this.
1: <laughs> like, <you're laughs> like,
0: you know what? Fuck it. This that, that is
2: this, not the experiment. That I'm is less less the, pile. First, this, the
0: first. This is the first time I explain. I've, I've read one of these books and been like, this sucks as a movie. <laughs> Nothing <laughs> happens. Everything that happens happens. All right. here. If I was going to make this movie, everything that was supposed to happen that we didn't see that would be the movie. Mm-hmm. So well, I would, that's, I would have that's the been done up. before. I would have the buildups and then actually have the things happen instead of be like, "Oh, thank God, I got out of that problem."
2: Isn't that kind of what I haven't read Children of Men, but I've heard that the novel of Children of Men
0: is, 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 does that same thing.
2: Yeah, that the movie is like a lot of what happens off screen oh, nice. in the okay. book, but I could be wrong because I haven't read it. I just right, right. everyone tells me the movie is better of Children of Men, not to read book. the book. And it's a great movie, so why so not?
0: Uh, I don't have a director or <laughs> right. anything like that. I
2: know David does. Yeah. Actually, I didn't think much about this one today. I definitely would make it. <laughs> maybe um, it would not be my priority. Like if ESP uh, Electric Sheep Productions called us and said, "Like, hey, what do you want to adapt?" This would be very low it's on very my list. far down the list. But if they yeah. said, "Like, hey, we really want a Doctor Blood Money script. What do you got?" You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it to him, but I would f- I would focus on kind of the I, I don't know I think I would focus a little bit more on Dangerfield yes in space and his story of him being trapped up there and his and try to create I mean,
0: show what Bluegeld actually fucking did yeah space.
2: I would I would do a little bit dancing more dancing
0: around it
2: my three main characters would be Hoppy Dangerfeld and Doctor Bluthgeld, Doctor Bluthgeld, Dangerfield, and Hoppy. Those would be that would be my focus mm-hmm. of the film and the Kellers. Yeah, I think. And yeah, you'd have
0: Stockstill in there, and uh, I mean, they're yeah necessary characters.
2: I like the idea of starting off the movie with Dangerfield in orbit already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, him being in orbit, he's
1: already taken on that disc jockey role. Yeah.
2: yeah, and I. Foresee this, I kind of picture the opening scene being him spinning a track, doing a a news report, and then the camera kind of pulling back to like, some kind of memorial or something for his dead wife, and then like, we kind of just discover that, like, in the wake of this failed... this is
0: with the credits playing. playing. uh, Right, yeah.
2: yeah, the credits are playing, and then we, and then we kind of cut to the surface and we see the people listening to the reports and that's how you kind of kick off into what's going on in West Marin and then Marin, Marin. and then, um, and that's kind of, I, I can definitely see how you would start it. And then the, the theme of it would be this. I, I like the dichotomy of this guy who's in space, like dying slowly and trying to keep up the spirits of the people who are trying to rebuild this utopia right and then this one like kind of magneto type character who's trying to stop it all and i think that could be an interesting
1: i movie. would i would kill dangerfield halfway through the movie but not have anybody on the ground know about it until hoppy goes to try to
2: they expose hoppy yeah. for for replacing him
1: yeah that
2: would be oh. awesome yeah keep yeah. it secret my man make it up a top. reveal boom yep yep um because that twist yeah. yeah. It kinda happens in the book, but the, it would mm. Yeah. Tele- a so lot so of stuff kinda happens in this book. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's so telegraphed though.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah but that's that's how I do it. So if somebody and as far as director and you kind of
0: expected that in the book, didn't you? That Dangerfield had been dead for a while and that Hoppy mm-hmm. had been doing it. Yeah. And so... just not telling anyone.
2: So the important question I have for Anthony is, is Michael Shannon playing Guild or is he playing Dangerfield?
1: Oh, he's
0: definitely Guild. He's,
1: no, I, oh man. (sighs) Honestly, I think Michael Shannon should be probably... Poppy. No. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Probably, I don't know, I think Dangerfield would be a better, like, more of a a role for him that he hasn't done before, but I could also see him doing a stock still. Okay. Right. Uh, But yeah, probably Guild.
2: <laughs> yeah, so
1: Guy so, Pearce. So Guy-, <laughs> is-
2: <laughs> Guy Pierce is playing Poppy. Um- yeah, we know. No, 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 no. Yeah, I don't. Conchi? know. No. He could do it, man. Well, well, you heard he it wouldn- here, folks. David advocating
1: for Guy in blackface. <laughs> no, fuck uh, you guys. I'm not a Holocaust <laughs> denier.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right, listen. Uh, no, I think he would play Danger. I, I'd, I'd cast uh, Pearce as as Dangerfield, Dangerfield. So. Sure, uh, that would work. So, um, just because i got to cast in Honestly,
1: somewhere. Michael Shannon is Ferguson, a pissy shopkeeper. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, but, yeah, as far as director, I don't know. Yeah, me neither. I don't know. i
1: got to be
0: honest All with right, you. I don't know. This one's, yeah, this one's so far. If I had to. Although, I think, to, I think I the think, movie
2: think, we're kind of yeah. spinning out here it doesn't sound so I bad. actually
1: think because he did a, such a good job of blending kind of rural in cityscape with, like, science fiction Sci-fi stuff without... Yeah, it's Ryan Johnson. Oh! Oh. No, that wasn't what I was going to say. Where did you think I was going? I was going to say Jeff Nichols. Or Jeff Nichols, but I think Ryan Johnson does a really good job of keeping his sci-fi background, as opposed to in your face, you know, Star Wars notwithstanding. But, like, I think, because I thought Looper was so phenomenal, I think he could do a pretty solid uh, Dr. Blood money,
0: because they're already in
1: this rural town... You
0: know.
2: Yeah, well, and I think Jeff Nichols is one of his most underrated directors. I love Midnight Special. And, absolutely, and, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. So Whoever did
0: Pleasantville, that would be a person. that
2: I don't know who did Pleasantville. That, I'm, that, my film geekdom is failing me. <laughs> okay, um, but yeah, I, I I don't know. Like, I think our Dr. Blood Money movie, now that we're kind of spinning it out, doesn't sound so terrible. Uh, but definitely this would be one where some people would be like, it's not like the book.
1: Oh yeah. Cuz every book. Yeah. yeah there, we're definitely
2: there's not, no way you could do this. You're not faithfully adapting this. No, no by, not by at all. any stretch of the imagination. So, what are do we right, doing next? So coming up next month, on the Dickheads
1: podcast, we're reading The Kraken Space. The Kraken Space.
0: <laughs> space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah Mike. Yeah. <laughs> Toilet
1: flush.
0: <laughs> the Kraken <in> Space.
1: <laughs> wherein a repairman discovers that a hole in a faulty, jiffy scuttler <laughs> leads to a what? parallel world. Jim Briskin, campaigning to be the first black president of the United States, thinks Alter Earth is the solution to the chronic overpopulation that has 70 million people cryogenically frozen. Tito Crivelli. Uh, <laughs> oh, I've <I'm> casted Louise <laughs> Guzman in that role.
0: <laughs> T-
2: <laughs> uh, sh... The uh, shadowy
1: private detective wants to know why Dr. Lurton Sands, that's a name, is hiding his right. mistress on the planet. Lerton. billion Billionaire mutant George Walt wants to make the empty world all his own. But when the other earth turns out to be inhabited, everything changes. Winner of both the Hugo and the John W. Campbell Awards for Best Novel, widely regarded as the premier science fiction writer of his day. And the object of cult-like adoration from his legions of fans coming into the ring, Philip K. Dick. (laughs) <laughs> has come to be seen in a literary light that defies classification, much in the same way as bo- what the fuck this is like twenty five percent a fucking plot summary, and then like another rest of it is just wow. Is Philip just, is dead. It's I just it's just like him. coming to the stage. Philip kd <laughs> and, and then like there's pyrotechnics and PKD. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> oh
2: fuck. Nope. Woo. All right. All right. Kraken uh, space sounds bananas. I'm looking forward to this one. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um wow. All right. So on that note, folks, um, keep it paranoid. That might be our best preview. Yet, yeah, <laughs> I think. Uh, we might have to pull that one out as a teaser <laughs> for YouTube. All right. Uh, keep it paranoid, folks. Later. Stay paranoid.